Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So on this episode of the Business of Healthcare podcast, I had the absolute pleasure of meeting with Sean Duggan, OBE, who has been the Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation's Mental Health Network since 2016. At the time of recording, Sean has been working in and leading mental health services for the past 42 years, and his passion started from observing his father's career in mental health. So in this interview, we jump straight into it. We've started to use the new NHS jargon. We're talking a lot about ICSs, integrated care systems, integrated care boards. We also talk about the NHS Confederation and the mental health network. We, of course, talk about influencing skills. And Sean gives us really good practical advice that we can use when crafting our arguments. We talk a lot about the importance of relationships, collaboration, and Sean is really excited and and used the phrase, we need to give this a go, we need to give this new way of working, this new way of commissioning services, a new way of coming together a good go. I absolutely loved it. I don't know if you can hear, obviously because this is not video, but I just was just smiling the whole time. It's lovely to meet people that are so passionate and enthusiastic about the role. And you guys will walk away with some really practical advice for influencing decisions and approving decisions. Enjoy. Hey, Sean, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? And hello, Tara. I'm doing very well indeed. And I'm pretty excited because it's the grandchildren's uh, last day of school. So we're uh, looking forward to seeing more of them during the holiday. Ah, oh, excellent, excellent. So I first saw you, I'd obviously, I'd seen you online, I'd seen your profile and lots of lists. And then we were both at the NHS Confederation Conference. And every time I tried to come over to you, it was at the dinner um, where, who was it? It was John Barnes was there. I think we were both there. And I was a bit like, just Tara, just go over and speak to him, just go over and speak to him. And every time I plucked up the courage and walked a bit closer, somebody else nabbed you. Yeah. So, uh, firstly, apologise. You let both of I mean, I did have, it was a great conference, and, uh, you know, um, six and a half thousand people at one stage. Uh, so we're talking very big numbers. And, uh, you know, I actually was very proud to be working for the NHS Confederation, if we can pull that off. There were some teething problems, some difficulties, but by and large, amazing. Yeah, it was really, really good. So would you be able to share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do today? 
Yeah, so I'm uh, a nurse by background, mental health nurse. I came from a, a largely nursing family and mental health nursing uh, family. My father um, used to run uh, um, an institution, a mental health hospital, uh, many years ago. So I, was, I grew up in, um, in, in that, and he also had a, uh, a home for people recovering from mental health problems and coming out of hospital, really quite progressive in its time. Uh, and that was next door to us. So I was, um, I, I sort of grew up with um, with mental health as, as an issue and um, doing something about it. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. And then I did my general nursing as well. And I knew then that I sort of quite fancied going into management and one day being a leader. And I've, I really felt that the, my passion was around mental health uh, for sure. So it's a traditional, in some ways, traditional NHS career. I did a, a fast track scheme many, many, many years ago. I mean, I've been in mental health for 42 years. So it gives you some idea of the length of my career. And I uh, ran mental health units, community, developed community teams at the forefront of uh, closing the institutions that my father helped run <laughs> and uh, quite rightly closing them and, and developing community services. And then I quite enjoyed, became I think a board director in my mid-30s, a director of um, mental health and nursing. And um, I always fancied doing some, finding out what was going on at the Department of Health, who was coming up with all this health policy intrigued me. You know, what, sometimes from a sort of sceptical point of view, how on earth did they come up with that? But also sometimes thinking, wow, really good, innovative policy. Who does this? So I went up to the Department of Health and did um, three or four years, really exciting job as a prison mental health lead for the prison health department within the Department of Health. And um, that was good because it was uh, bringing in mental health services for the first time in the prison service, which was a neglected area. And I always like to do that in my career, going into to areas where there's a lot of work to be done and really, really disadvantaged people are. So and then I had the most incredible experience of running uh, an international think tank, Sainsbury Centre for Mental Health, funded by Lord David Sainsbury. I started off being a director of criminal justice in that uh, think tank, and then I uh, ran it for quite a few years, which took me to my current job in the NHS Confederation, because being a mental health leader within the charity world, when uh, this job came up, it was usually my predecessors were all chief execs of mental health trust. And although I'd run mental health services before, I was in the charity world. So it was a, it was a brave step to take somebody from the charity world, but a good step in my opinion. Uh, so I've been in this role for nearly six years now and 80 members in the mental health network. We pride ourselves for being truly cross sector in that we have the independent sector organisations, we have uh, all of the mental health NHS trusts and the voluntary sector. So people, organisations that are running mental health services, that's our network and we're, our family is the NHS Confederation. Cool. So um, a really, really, really long history there. In regards to this current position, where you said you didn't have the same experience as potentially your peers of leading a trust, when you applied for the role, what was it that made you think I may not have I may not have trust experience, but I'm just going to go for it anyway? Because lots of people wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good question. In fairness, I was encouraged by my colleagues to go for it, and I think, and I was encouraged because I was a little different from 
um, you know, being a chief executive running a mental health trust. I was different in that. My role was innovation, um, cutting edge research development. And the mental health network at the time, in fairness to them, brilliant, they wanted a bit of that. You know, they, they've got the members, uh, members are happy, but we could have, I think the, f- the feeling was, let's do more around innovation. What's around the corner? What's really good practice? Where's the evidence? That's what they wanted. And, and I wanted actually to get back in closer to the NHS and bring my skills and experiences. So it was a bit of a marriage made in heaven. Uh, yeah, there was, I was thinking, well, they'll probably want to go with customer practice, you know, a practicing chief executive of a mental health trust. But um, I thought, give it a go. And, and actually, I do remember the, the panel consisted of a carer, service user, couple of chairs, couple of chief execs. It was a really good, you know, as, as we do in mental health, we, we bring the stakeholders in to make decisions, particularly service users, co-productioners, you know. Um, and, and I love that. I, I completely love that. So that was good because it meant that, you know, other parts of the system, not just the managers, made the decision. So, yeah. And can you remember, knowing what you know now, would you have done anything different in like the first 12 months of your role? I'm absolutely sure I would. I mean, I pride myself in learning. As my um, six-year-old grandson said to me a few weeks ago, he came in to me and he said, Granddad, life is all about learning. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's pretty, it's pretty wise for a seven-year-old grandson. And uh, but how right he is. You've got to, you've got to. So what would I have done different? Did you say in the first year, sort of, what would yeah. I have done different? I think I probably, what, what, one, one thing I would have done is um, the Mental Health Network is part of the family of the NHS Confederation. When I first came in, we were, fit, we were sort of, we prided ourselves to be autonomous and if, if anything independent really it was verging on independent you know so the NHS Confederation was there it had an acute network it had an independent uh, network it had pri- uh, primary care and community care these are wonderful things I should have got got in more with that family rather than sort of endorse the independence we got okay. there in the end we are that yep. we are we're pretty much of a family now, but we should have speeded up on that, really, because it's this thing about, you know, you've got an entity, an organisation like Mental Health Network, but we would we could do better. We'd be much more productive if we used the family that we're involved in, you know, the synergy, you know, use the support around you. There was a view that, well, that's the confed, leave that over there, we'll, we'll run the mental health bit. And, of course, now, wind the clock forward six years, it's all about system, isn't it? Integration and system. So fortunately, we have moved the mental health to be you know, right in the centre of things, which is where it should be. So moving forwards, for those listeners that are getting their head around integrated care systems, from an NHS confederation point of view, will the mental health network stay as one network or will you split off into ICS regions and come together with your peers across the system another good question and how right you are now of course we needed to consider this because if we were thinking you know we were encouraging true integration well we've got to lead by example so yeah we could have said well 
in that case, let's, you know, let's all, we've got an integrated care system network, we've got a primary care network, we've got an acute, you know, let's have mental health in all parts of that. Actually, the reality is our AT members, they want support, they want a view, they want a narrative, they want uh, meetings around the service that we provide, which is mental health services. But they also want... What does it mean to have mental health services in the system, in the in the integrated care system? So what we do very much is we, you know, we, you know, I've, I've got somebody in my team that's sole responsibility is to work with the other parts of the NHS Confederation. So we are truly integrated. But the time is not right. It really, 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 the time is not right to say, well, mental health can go off in the NHS Confederation, there's too much, you know, we haven't achieved parity of esteem yet. And I, I would say until we achieve parity of esteem, until mental health is as equal as physical health, and we're a long way from that, there's no, you can't go dismantling successful mental health parts of the furniture. You, you, it's just not the right time. And um, yeah, so that's, that's, for me, that's a good question there. Why do you think, so in your career, 42 years later, why do you think we still do not see mental health as important as our physical health? Yeah, I, I think I think the big the the sort of big component of that answer is stigma. That's what got in the way. So you know, you know, only a few years ago, one o'clock back, mental health wouldn't wouldn't be talked about. You know, if you go to uh, go into a school now, my again, my my. My granddaughter of 10, I think, she came back and she had a session on mental health the other day at school. And that wouldn't be a heard of it only a few years ago. So the stigma was absolutely rife and people just crushed the mental health bit, didn't acknowledge it. And that was in the employment situation. It was in leisure institutions, you know, everything and in families. And the one o'clock forward, everybody's talking about mental health. You know, we, we haven't quite got rid of the stigma. So that was a big component of lack of progress, why it isn't even to mental health. And the other reason, I think, the evidence wasn't there. We now know if you've got a mental health problem, you're more likely to have a long-term physical condition. If you've got a long-term physical condition like diabetes, you're four times more likely to have a mental health problem, which is probably a depression or anxiety. And when you look at the numbers of children that are suffering from mental health problems, the pandemic has been hard on children and uh, a lot more children are experiencing mental health issues. That that will raise, that continues to raise the profile, to bring it up to what physical is. And, and I just don't think the evidence has been there. And we haven't had the narrative there about, you know, it, it's two together. The physical and mental health are in, they interrelate. If you get good mental health services, you'll get good physical health services and the and vice versa. Good, good physical health services. If we are fit, we eat well, we sleep well and all that, you know, we're likely to have good mental health. And we're, we're getting there now, but we didn't really talk about this and know this in our hearts years ago. So that stumbled things. That's that, that stalled. Uh, the progress but I, I do think the stigma uh, lifting and uh, doing a lot of work on the stigma you'll remember the big lottery you know god bless them the big lottery put the money into tackling stigma with mind and rethink um rethink mental illness taking the lead on it for years that was fantastic work 10 years of but it worked and it needed that 10 years what do we need now what do we need for the next 10 years yeah we 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 really are still not there and we need government to really believe that mental health is as important 
as physical health. And, you know, uh, the listeners here, so those of you in mental health, listeners of you in mental health, you will come across on a daily basis where we still have to say, don't forget mental health. It's, it's all about uh, acute hospital financial deficits. It's where are the pressures? The pressures are in accident and emergency. They're in ambulances. That yeah, no, that they're also in mental health hospitals, mental health community teams, eating disorder clinics. We can't, you know, as, as I say, 100% increase in referrals to either. There's where the pressures are as well. And until we talk about um, the pressures in the physical parts of our health service alongside the mental health parts of our as as important as they, you know, they're equally as important. Um, until that, until we get to that stage, there's not the progress that we need. That's that's apart from investment. We still don't invest enough money in mental health compared to physical health, and that's been the case since I've been around. We've started to um, start to address that gap. Over the last 10 years, there has been financially backed plans for mental health called the five-year forward view, now the long-term plan. And we've put more money into children's care. And, you know, it's filtering in, it's getting there, we're better off for it, but we've still got, you know, we really have got a long way to go. So within the NHS Confederation, what are your members asking for? And then what does the NHS Confederation, what do you do about it? So they they ask ask for us to... um, lobby for them to the government they ask us to influence government they ask us to advocate for them uh, to government powers and beings and we do and we like to do that there's good way like everything else in life there's good ways of doing that and there's less good ways of doing that and I think we're pretty good at doing that more about that if you want to know as we go as I was going to say what, what's a less good way of doing that well, I think a less good way is banging your fist on the table saying, come on, government, <laughs> we, we need more money for the ambulance service. We need more money for hospitals. We need m- more money for this heat wave, you know, that we've just had. You know, what was the big thing? Well, the big thing was hospitals, that are the old style hospitals that we've not invested in over the years were furnaces. They were really hot. That's in physical health. You know, we would talk to, we talked about theatres, people going to theatres are not adequately, the old style theatres, not adequately capable to deal with these temperatures of um, higher 30s. The same in mental health hospitals and the end in learning disability hospitals, old Victorian buildings, which we haven't really looked after the estate for years. Um, that was slightly embarrassing. We shouldn't be in, in those, we should have addressed this, you know, and um, that, that was a good example, I think, of where we, where we fall down, uh, you know, with lack of investment over the years. How do you fight for your services, but also taking into consideration the local hospital doesn't have, you know, like the right infrastructure, enough staff, enough opportunities? How do you fight for yours and but also still come across as collaborative and that you can see the other person's point of view? Yeah, and, and I think it relates to the first question, which I didn't answer properly, is that, you know, what are the bad ways and the good ways of sort of influencing and, and lobbying government? One thing you don't do, as I've started to say, is bang, bang your fist on the table and just demand. You know, that's not the way to do things. The way to do things is to constructively um, talk about um, uh, what, why it's important to invest in certain services, um, give evidence as to why that is, where you can demonstrate the return on investment 
So if you put a, for example, if you if you put a, a mental health nurse in an accident and emergency department, they're under so much pressure at the moment, coming up to winter, they will be as well. Then you will, you know, for every pound you put in, you will save three pounds in people not going into the services, getting high cost services. You filter out a mental health problem, usually depression or anxiety. So where you can, and there's lots of examples, you know, the return on investment, the um, improvements in outcomes, if you invest in early, we, that's what we need to do more of. And, and we do it in a constructive way. And we do it in a, I always think that in terms of how you fight for mental health, we used to whinge, we used to sort of say, well, there's never any money, you've not invested in mental health. And that probably would be the sort of, that would probably be the the main focus of our of our arguments and lobbying, and of course it doesn't get anywhere. What you've got to do is to say is to, is to demonstrate you know, we're here to help, uh, and if you put investment into mental health services, this is what you get in return. And there's a lot you get in return. It, it's, it's the thing I was I was saying. You know, when we talk about winter pressures, you watch this 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 winter. We'll talk about winter pressures, and it will be ambulances, acute hospitals, flus. All in, yeah, and it's also mental health. If you get good mental health services, if you have mental health practitioners going into hospitals screening out people with depression or anxiety, it's of great benefit, and it brings it pressure down. It really does, and we've we've demonstrated it with bed days and all that sort of thing, and that's that's how to to fight for the services. And I do think in the in the world of integrated care systems, the integrated care boards won't want mental health people coming in saying you, you underinvested in mental health and complaining about it they'll want them to come in and say look if we do if we do crisis services in in our local area if we do prevention around mental health that there's all the evidence around then you're more likely to get better physical health people going forward the whole I the whole prevention agenda is is we've got so much to offer in mental health that sort of discussions and integrated care boards they're going to love yeah, they're not gonna. They're not gonna love people. Uh, you know, as I used to do, moaning about mental health services not enough, not having enough money. That's not enough. Now we need to say how we can help, what we can do about improving mental health services, um, and how we can work with other partners. The mental health sector is brilliant at working with the voluntary sector, and the housing sector, and employment, and local communities. Brilliant, you know. And I, integrated care systems are going to want that. They're going to want that expertise. Do you sit on an IC integrated care board? Yeah, I certainly won't sit on an IC. It would be um, uh, probably a bit of a conflict for me to do okay. that. But I certainly encourage my colleagues to sit on ICB. So you might remember that um, uh, one, of, one of the wins we've had in recent lobbying for government is when the uh, health bill was going through to create integrated care systems boards. We said you have to have a mental health senior representative on that. And I sort of felt a bit guilty about saying that because I thought, well, they're all going to have mental health. How would you not? But we were right because not all uh, necessarily wanted to. But we got that and it's in it's in the um, it's in in law. Uh, So all of the boards. So to answer your question, all of the all of the ICD boards will have a mental health. I think we call it mental health expert, but they're they're usually and we've got, you know, we've got some. Paul Farmer, Chief Executive of Mind, he sits on a, an integrated care board. We've got Sarah Hughes, Chief Executive of the Centre for Mental Health. She sits on a, um, an integrated care board. And we have uh, mental health chief executives 
a lot of them will sit on the ICBs, providing all that really important. And that's the way to integrate, is it? That's the way to integrate, yeah. But how, what is your advice to those representatives on the board? How does a chief executive of mind on an ICB able to represent the views, the challenges and opportunities of their region when you've got so many different organisations and sectors to consider? Yeah, get, get networks into your local area. So what I would say is you can't expect, you know, Bournemouth ICB, you know, you can't, whoever the mental health representative there, you can't expect, if they come from the voluntary sector, for example, you wouldn't be able to expect them to be able to represent everybody within Bournemouth. But they, they've got they've got networks in their local areas. They know because they're sort of very senior people, like if we say the chief executive mind, so well connected, um, they will know who to rely on in that area to bring in talk to so, so they make sure they're in an informed way and they'll talk to them if it, if it isn't the chief executive of the mental health trust they'll talk to the chief executive of the mental health trust they'll talk to the medical director they'll, they'll be well that's what i would say use your network your connections and you, you know you these are important roles they're remunerated so you will spend some time ensuring that when you sit at the board you are not only giving your own view as a leader in the mental health services, you're reflecting the needs of the local population. And they'll know how to do that because they'll have the connections. They'll have the connections for sure. Where does primary care fit into this from your perspective, from a mental health perspective? Well, you know, truthfully, I'd like to say there's no, you know, primary and mental health care go together. That's what I truthfully like, but of course it's not the case. Yeah, uh, we only have to say, uh, I'll start off with a sort of negative and finish in a positive here. <laughs> you only have to look at the new practitioners in primary care, the new mental health practitioners in, in primary care. I think we call it ARSRs. Um, yeah. And in some areas it's brilliant, but in a lot of other areas there's been diff- difficulties between the NHS Trust and, and the primary care network. There's been difficulties following the money through, the money's not come through, that sort of stuff. You know, these arguments, we've got to get beyond that. I mean, that's, that is so, that, that, that's a bit sad, but, you know, it's reality. It's a bit sad it's happened because, um, you know, at the, you mentioned the NHS Confed Conference, uh, we had a session around these new practitioners and we had some of them there. And, oh, my goodness, as you'd imagine, they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant at doing all the stuff we've talked about, integrating primary care and mental health. They know who to get involved. They can fix things. They're, they're Mr and Mrs Fix-It. You know, they're, they're fantastic. Um, but, but unless you've got organisations loving them and looking after them and empowering them to do their work, so we've got to fix that. You know, so, that, so one of the things we'll do with primary care, which we've got a primary care network, within the NHS Confederation. So we, we, you know, we can help try and influence the solutions there. We don't go in and start our role to go in at local level and sort that out. But it is the responsibility of NHS England's regional managers uh, and others. These new practitioners are part of the long-term plan. So we've got to make it work. And it will work. But I just think, you know, that's a good example of where we know there should be absolute integration between mental health and primary care. But when we... When we try to put investments into it, there's a, a few blockages. So we've got to sort that out. Whenever you talk to people in primary care, they will say one of their big priorities is mental health. Um, so that's, you know, and when you talk to people in mental health, they'll say we need to fix primary care. We need to have better services in primary care. So we're all up for it. 
We've just got to find solutions and models to be able to do it. And those models are out there. You know, I can I can think of a few places around the country where they've got you know they've worked really hard to try and integrate mental health and primary care. And at the end of the day, Tara, as we all know, this is about relationships. Where you've got somebody in an NHS trust that's pretty pretty senior with um, they can take decisions on money. Where you've got the counterpart in primary care and they get on, uh, they really get on respect to trust each other. You're very likely to get some solutions. Should the commissioning of services and collaborative work, should that be based on who knows who and my strength of relationship with said person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to say it should or, or it shouldn't straight away because the history of commissioning, from my perspective in mental health, is I remember, um, well, I remember <laughs> various attempts at getting commissioning right. I even remember before the world, the, 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 the um, uh, commissioning being sort of introduced. But I do have sad memories of where CCGs, primary care trust CCGs, uh, where it just didn't work. And we had mistrust. We had arrangements whereby, yeah, you'd have a meeting with very senior, highly paid chief execs of mental health trusts. Uh, talking to somebody in a, in the commissioning world, clinical commissioning group before that primary care groups, whatever they were called, and they'd be quite junior, having a responsibility for commissioning, and the chief executive would be a multi-million pound, you know, responsibility. It, straight away, that just the power system wasn't quite right at all. You had, you didn't have trust, you didn't have respect. It seemed I was involved in it. It seemed to be combative. Uh, and it was sort of, you know, sort of in fighting for control and power. That did not work. And then we had years of whereby, you know, from a mental health perspective, we were we were having to go into clinical commission groups and say, well, where's the money gone? You know, uh, and, and that's no way to build. So now we've got com- uh, com- competition's gone. We've got collaboration. Uh, partnerships, uh, you, know, you know, let's work collectively. The fault, the, 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 the sort of, the risk of that is you're too reliant on relationships and you don't have the contracts in place and that sort of stuff. Um, so you've got to get a midway, you've got to get a happy medium somehow. And I believe, let's give this a go. Let's give integrated care systems and primary, and what, what we're now calling provider collaboratives, aren't we, with provider collaboratives. So when Chief Jack of a Mental Health Trust said to me, you know, a few months ago in April, oh, I'm, I'm a commissioner now. Uh, overnight, you know, well, it wasn't April, was it? It was when ICBs really came in and, and CCGs moved into ICSs. The, the chief executive of a uh, mental health trust provider club said, I'm a commissioner now. And he knew this wasn't overnight. He knew this was coming, but provider collaborators do the commissioning. And, and of course, what we see with provider clubs is they bought the commissioners in. Commissioning is still there, but... Um, you know, we've now got senior people that have got to get on, have got to respect each other to sort out, the, get the money and then make sure that the health of the population, in our case, my case, mental health care of the population is, um, is addressed, including working with the voluntary sector, the independent sector, housing, so we can resettle people, even people in forensic services, secure services. Usually people could be there for many, many years. And there's no reason why we can't resettle and recover people into the community to live good, um, active lives. 
that's what provider collaboratives all about. That's why we started them. Um, we've got to give that a go. We've got to get right behind them. And ICSs are now giving money to the provider collaboratives. And I just see this is worth giving it a really good go. Early indications are that it's working quite well. Are there any issues that we, that it's great that you're so positive about it. Are there any risks and issues on your radar that you just want to keep check of as we move into this as a different way of working? Yeah, I, I, I two money and priority for mental health. When I hear, you know, when we start to question very senior influential people, they don't talk about mental health being a priority. That worries me because we're not, you know, as I said right early on, we haven't achieved, we're a low, long way from achieving parity of esteem. You can only achieve it if you keep, if you really believe that mental health is as important as physical health and you keep believing that. So when you get change of personnel at very senior level uh, and, and including ministers, you know, got a new secretary of state. Um, I haven't heard him talk about mental health of late, I haven't heard him talk about the new 10-year cross-government plan that Sajid Javid uh, launched a few a few months ago. That that's a worry. You know, we we've got to keep it right up there at the top. And the second thing is money. You know, and I, I know this current. You know, it's difficult to go to the current government and say we need more investment, we need more money, because we know there ain't much more money, and it's going to be hard over the next few years to to make the case for extra money. Fortunately, in mental health, we've got two years of the long-term plan left. So there is a bit more money for the, for the next two years. And we'll use that very wisely. We will use that very carefully. And that'll allow us to grow and, and develop services, which is, which is marvellous. Keeps morale up, keeps everybody working well. We'll get a better chance of sorting out the workforce issues where we've got a little bit of investment coming into the service. After two years, I worry, and, and, and everybody's worried. Um, so that's, that's my answer to that one. How would you describe your leadership style? Yeah, so I, I'd say that I am, the big word for me is compassionate. And I say, I, I, I feel I am compassionate. I, I remember all too well the, the, the um, culture in the NHS of targets, 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 and the fear culture you know, the fear of doing something wrong, the fear of being downgraded by the CQC, the fear of um, serious complaints coming in, the fear of suicide, you know, so you can see the common denominator I'm talking about is fear. Yeah. Um, and we really, it's like everything in life, you know, we really can't, you can't progress and have high productivity where you've got fear. So you've got to take the fear out of it and you've got to, you know, when I, when I hear leaders in health saying, well, we love our staff, you know, we really want to empower, look, up, that's it. You know, what, what's the most important thing? As the chief executive said to me the other day, we used to think that money was the most important thing to run our services. But now we think it's people. And we all know that we should have put people at the forefront. Um, but we didn't for a while. Targets and money. We now put people at the forefront. And I put people at the forefront. It's easy for me to say that because I don't run... Um, you know, I don't run big operational multi-million pound uh, services. But if I did, I'd put people, my staff at the forefront and I'd give them most of the attention and most of the priority. And I think my, my leadership style is, is compassionate. It, it's it's uh, inclusive, you know, to address inequalities, to address 
ethnic inequalities uh, and and you know because if you don't do that then you don't run a, a good a good service and um and i think it's about inclusivity yeah i just you know i've got a small team of staff but i wouldn't dream of not um you know every decision we take it's easier for me but every decision we take you know i would pride myself on making sure that there's involvement with my staff and because the obvious thing is that if I do that, it's more likely to get it done. <laughs> if I don't do it, it's, uh, it won't get done because they won't own it. They won't own the decisions taken going forward. Easy for me to say with a small group of staff, but that's how I think I'd probably describe. I suppose one last thing is communication. Is use your personality and character, you know, and, and connect. Connect. It's this thing about relationships. And the government have decided that we should run our health and social care services on integration and partnerships and collaboration well that's how we have but that's how we have to behave you know we can't no longer can we do the territory and well i this is my bit and you have to you know it's not my responsibility it's actually being generous with that and going outside our borders well no i'll take some responsibility for that and we'll work together uh and i, and I know that sounds like well how do you measure all that well it can be measured uh, but it's the right approach. How do you protect your own mental health? Yes. So I suppose the assumption is that people in leadership positions of mental health, uh, you know, spend a lot of time <laughs> looking after their own mental health. The reality, the truth will be that we don't. Um, but how I look after my own mental health, I've always, I, I learned in mental health nursing, talk about, pro- you know, talk about problems. For me, but some people, it won't be for, for everybody, but... If I've got a problem, I often say to my um, friends and family and also my work colleagues, everybody knows about it. So I, I'll, what, it doesn't matter about grade, seniority, if you've got a problem. So one of the things we do as, as a team, and I've noticed other people doing it as well now, when we have our, we call them, uh, during the pandemic, that taught us a lot about looking after our mental health, didn't it? If it didn't, we missed a trick there, it should have done. Um, during the pandemic, we, we had, it's again, a bit easier for us, we had half an hour check-in every day. And actually, um, 15 minutes of that checking in on each other. Because it was just yeah. wild, wasn't it? When we first got the pandemic and we were locked down, everybody struggled with adjusting to that. So we've kept a bit of that going, one a week, um, whereby we will check in. And it isn't just about checking. We'll, we'll accept. If somebody's had a loss uh, over the weekend or somebody's had you know, in financial difficulties, we'll we will encourage the discussion of that in, a, in our team. And, and I, I value and love that. Um, but you asked me about my how I protect my own mental health. I do think, I, 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 I try to go with what the evidence is. You know, you're, you're, you're more likely to have good mental health if you sleep well, if you play well, if you get the adjustment right between work, uh, busy work life and your family life, if you protect and invest in your relationships, how often do we see people with poor mental health who've fallen out with their, um, you know, cousins, brother, sister, you know, the, the, the toxic relationships really does have an effect. So I always say, and I do this, I invest in my friendships and people I love, I invest in that, I invest time uh, and, and I don't, and I will concede ground if I think there's just there's a bit of a dispute going, I think that the most most important thing is a constructive relationship, particularly those with those people that you love. Uh, so I will concede ground and I will I will make sure above anything else, I'll try and get that relationship to work. 
because that's better for my for my mental health. And then I watch, you know, what I eat, what I drink. I don't say that I'm I'm not an angel um, and and things aren't quite right sometimes. But uh, that's how I do it. So I try to look at what the evidence says. And of course, the great thing about good mental health well-being, the evidence is quite simple. Just live, you know, try to live your life carefully. Um, everything in moderation, particularly alcohol, and uh, look after your um, relationships. There's one thing I've left out. I don't, uh, you know, it's not hitting people like me, um, privileged people, but the cost of living uh, and the economy, that's hitting hard. And people, more people are going into debt. And the correlation between debt and poor mental health couldn't be clearer. Um, so I would say to people, you know, watch your finances in this world going forward with inflation as it is, nearly 10%. You know, look after your finances. What you don't want to do is to go into debt because that's not a good story. Thank you. At the beginning of this interview, you said when early on in your career, you would look up at public health and you'd look at the policies that they were creating. And with intrigue, sometimes you'd think, who came up with that great idea? Or that is a generally good idea. Now you are in a position of influence. What do you wish your colleagues? could appreciate more about decision-making in the health and care system? Well, for me, it's simple. And it, it, for me, it's simple. It's a, a simple answer. And it relates to a lot of what the theme of what I've been talking about for the last however long we've been talking. But it is, I really do want my colleagues to think about mental health and people don't think about mental health. So it's back to what I was saying earlier. Often when you talk, when we talk about health and social care, if we talk about pressures in the health system it's a and e it's hospitals it's ambulances and we're missing a real trick because we're not including people with mental health problems people with learning disabilities and and people with autism you know but let, let's just say for the sake of argument because you know mainly what i deal with is mental health but you know we we leave out mental health and and that's to the detriment so i wish my colleagues um you know, it, it's a bit like when we were really trying to get equalities and diversity, you know, enshrined within organisations. We said, well, any policy you, you make, any policy that you have or you're working on, you must have, a, you know, you must include equalities and diversities in that. You know, and we've been saying sometimes, whenever you have a health and social care policy, you must include mental health in that. But I want that to be at the forefront of my colleagues' minds when they're talking about, health and social care going forward you must include mental health and we don't and until we do it, we won't quite get the progress that we need Sean thank you so much I really appreciate your time and I, I yeah I, I really like this I've, I've learned a lot and I think from somebody that's based in primary care and primary care networks we do talk a lot about mental health and you know I'm very aware of the mental health practitioner role from the additional role reimbursement scheme and when it works it's amazing um, when it doesn't, it's just, it's really unfortunate. And I think both parties, we've got a lot of work to do to make sure we understand and we protect the mental health practitioner because they just get bombarded um, with everything. So I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, I loved it. Thank you very much, Tara. Thank you. Thank you so much 
so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.